This is a business, you know, and the last thing you want if you have a burgeoning business is to have the impetus for that business to go away. You have to have racism in order to make money fighting racism. Um, you have to have racism in order to have what even Kendi claims he wants, which is a department of anti-racism as another branch of government. So in order to justify another branch of government, you know, um, you have to maintain the reason why that branch of government came up in the first place. In order to have a department of anti-racism, you need racism. And a good way to guarantee that is to make sure racism is everywhere. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. So if you've been paying any attention to the news lately, you have heard the term critical race theory, or CRT. I'd also surmise that even if you have been paying very close attention to the news, you're still not sure what critical race theory means. So uh, in a tiny nutshell, let's just say that it's a framework for thinking about the way race intersects with legal systems and other institutions in such a way that there's a persistent fundamental inequality in society. This idea was first written and talked about in the 1990s, and until recently, it was mostly confined to esoteric academic discussions. Um, but during the Trump administration, a version of critical race theory began to take hold in schools and workplaces. And for reasons we're going to get into in this interview, this led to the Trump administration loudly opposing it, whatever they thought it was. And from there, state bills calling for bans on the teaching of what's commonly called divisive concepts. And no one can agree on what that means either. So in order to understand this a bit better, I wanted to bring someone onto the podcast who would help cut through some of the confusion while also being neither a proponent of CRT nor dogmatically opposed to it. So I invited Eric Smith. Eric is a scholar in the field of rhetoric. He is a professor at York College of Pennsylvania and the author of the book, A Critique of Anti-Racism in Rhetoric and Composition. He's also lately been writing more mainstream journalism and his piece in Newsweek last summer, Why I Still Talk to White People About Racism, caused a stir in some academic and activist circles. He joined me to talk about all of this, as well as answer some basic questions about what it is that everyone is so upset about. Eric Smith, welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. Hello, thanks for having me. You are a professor of English, specifically rhetoric and composition at York College of Pennsylvania. And you're also the author of a couple of scholarly books. And lately you've been writing more journalism, which I want to talk about. But the big thing I want to help elucidate here in this conversation, hopefully, is this idea, this morass, really, that we're calling critical race theory, yes. <laughs> which uh, in the last few weeks has, in some corners, been reaching something approaching a moral panic. Am I am I overstating that? Uh, not uh, at all. <laughs> okay. Not at all. Um, okay. I you know I've been trying to figure out the best way to start this conversation because um, everybody is talking about this without quite knowing what it is, and that's why I think I'm going to start with a kind of mini case in confusion. And I apologize if this is a little long winded, but I think it's germane to your 
position as a scholar of rhetoric. And after this, you're going to do most of the talking, I promise. But okay, just <laughs> right. he- hear me out here. Uh, so say I have a friend, someone I've known for a long time, who is you know politically to the right of me, um, follows the news, but is not following every little flare up in the culture wars the way I am and you are. So this is somebody who thinks of herself as not a racist, but does not know that this has become a different thing than being anti-racist. Okay. So she's got a couple of kids in public school, uh, in a, in a GOP controlled state. Maybe she's in the South, for instance. Um, so let's say we're talking on the phone and catching up after a long time and say this was like a month or so ago. And suddenly in the context of talking about just the general madness of our era, the subject of critical race theory comes up. And on this subject, my friend expresses a real anxiety about what's happening in her state, in her kids' schools, maybe even in her own workplace. And pretty soon she's talking about critical race theory the way liberals used to talk about the moral majority or or Christian conservatives taking over politics. There's like fear in her voice. And pretty soon she's talking about communism. And so when I ask her what she thinks critical race theory really is, she is not sure how to answer. And when I try to explain it to her, I realize I can't explain it either. (laughs) So my opening question to you, Eric, my very long-winded question is how should I, a person who ostensibly keeps up with these things, have answered her? And, And maybe more to the point, What does she think she's talking about when she talks about critical race theory? What's got her so upset? Well, um, I don't know this hypothetical person personally, so I can't. You probably know, you know a version of her, though. Uh, Sure, I know a version of her. And we like her. We like her. This is a friend. Yeah, she's a well-meaning individual, you know, who wants to do the right thing. Um, But what she is scared of, I think, is what's being called critical race theory. Uh, which is happening in schools and workplaces um, that is typically referred to in, say, the um, the uh, state Senate bills um, against CRT. Um, they're called uh, divisive concepts, right? And what that basically means is, you know, uh, you're not allowed to uh, make decisions based on immutable characteristics like, say, skin color or ethnicity or sex or something like that. Um, She thinks that what's going on in K through 12 college workplaces is that people are being discriminated against and it's being called anti-racism. White people are being considered inherently oppressor. People of color, especially black people, are being considered inherently oppressed. Um, There is this idea that, you know, we shouldn't ask whether racism happened, but how it manifested in that situation, which is to say it's always there. You know, um, it's ubiquitous. It's, well, systemic in the society. And that, you know, um, ideas like intent doesn't matter. It's only about impact, right? These ideas that, uh, you know, transcend particular situations. And it's just this blanket idea of racism as being put on everything regardless of the situation, regardless of the players within that situation. Um, I I think that's what people are afraid of. Now, people will keep saying, oh, that's not CRT. That's not critical race theory. 
Uh, my answer to that is, I don't care. C- call it what you want. I mean, pick another label. Call it not CRT. That's my favorite one. You know, the point is, you know, there's some it's an anti-CRT. It's it's like, well, it's not even anti-CRT. It's just not CRT. CRT yes. with a line through it. Okay. Yes. Yes. How about the circle with the line through it and CRT? Just have it be a symbol. I don't know. The point is, whatever is going on in the schools, um, you know, in the workplace is divisive. Um, and it is uh, painting certain people uh, with certain moral characteristics, right, based solely on the color of their skin. And this is what people are uh, up in arms about. Now, I, you know, think that all this is derived from what's called critical race theory, but it may be more accurately called critical white studies or critical social justice. Both these ideas coming from people like uh, Robin DiAngelo um, or Ibram Kendi or some other people that, you know, um, are also associated with uh, critical race theory. So that's the um, messy hodgepodge of it. So that's interesting. You're saying it could be called critical whiteness. Did you say theory or studies? Studies. Okay. But I mean theory, you know. Because the, I, my, I've been interpreting critical race theory as looking at uh, looking at the concept of race in general, but also having just a deeper understanding of um, the the history of African Americans, for instance. So I'm kind of surprised to hear you kind of frame it around the idea of of whiteness. Well, I, I think, I mean, I wouldn't, you know, uh, call it critical white studies. It's being called uh, critical white white studies, and that is derived from critical race theory. I mean, Richard Delgado um, and uh, Jeans to Stefancic, you know, those are people who are considered the original or two of the original critical race theorists, uh, also have some writings in what they call critical white studies. And when you look into critical white studies um, and critical social justice and the kind of stuff that, um, say, Robin D'Angelo is doing, right, uh, that's really what's being, uh, you know, that's really what's causing the fear in K through 12, higher ed, um, the workplace and things like that. So when people say, oh, it's, it's not, it's not CRT, that's kind of a distraction. That's a red herring. It's, C- okay. it's CRT adjacent. It's, it's, it's CRT, it's close enough to CRT. And if you want to call it critical white studies or critical social justice, fine, call it something. The point is it's happening and it needs to be dealt with. Okay. So how did we get here? Because this has been present in academia for decades. Richard Delgado is was one of the first people to write about critical race theory. Who's the other important player? In, in uh, what is, there's Derek Bell, there's Kimberly Crenshaw, there's Mari Matsuda. Right. Okay. And Kimberly Crenshaw is the one who coined the term intersectionality. And yes. she, she's a law professor. And so that came out of uh, a legal legal case study. Um, Most know, of actually, them are. Yeah, and and had very useful applications in that context. Um, So, okay, so how did this concept of critical race theory make its way from, you know, humanities departments of liberal arts colleges uh, to, like, K through 12 public education, especially in the last year? Like, has it been sneaking up on us for, for decades and we're only now noticing? Or was there some kind of pivotal moment? Um, people have been writing about these issues for quite some time. Jonathan Roche has a book, Kindly Inquisitors, um, that was, you know, written several years ago, um, you know, the, the 90s, if I'm not mistaken, that 
reads like it came out two weeks ago, you know, regarding how it's talking about um, race issues in America and um, how it's, you know, uh, dinging a warning bell for what we're calling now critical race theory. Um, there are some other, the book Beyond All Reason uh, that came out, uh, you know, in a similar time um, also does this. I mean, there, there are uh, Randall, Randall Kennedy, um, another law professor, uh, speaks out about critical race theory in ways that sound like it came out two weeks ago. And he did that in the late 90s, early, I mean, late 80s, early 90s. So, yeah, it's been slowly sneaking up. But last decade, with the election of Donald Trump and um, you know, more and more evidence of police brutality against unarmed uh, people of color, right, um, that, you know, made its way through every media outlet possible. Right. That kind of ramped things up to what uh, many people would call a great awakening. Right. And that great awakening opened the door for, you know, uh, people to not just address issues of race, um, but for people who feel guilty and want to do something, you know, to 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 get into the mix. And, you know, uh, as timing would have it, the work of Robin DiAngelo and Ibram X. Kendi you know, what's already trending, right? Um, and this just ramped things up uh, even more. And again, there are several critical race theorists who would say that Kendi and D'Angelo are not critical race theorists, which I think is an irrele- uh, it's, it's not an important... Uh, what would they know. say they are? And Robin D'Angelo is the author of White Fragility. Yes, what would they say they are? Um, well, Robin D'Angelo would call herself a critical social justice um, you know, scholar, right? Uh, Kendi just refers to himself as anti-racist, but they, they both acknowledge that uh, critical race theory um, inspires them thoroughly. I mean, a lot of it comes from uh, CRT, right? Okay. But, uh, but that's what we're seeing in the schools. Uh, there's there's a, um, a list of tenets of anti-racism in education uh, from Robin D'Angelo and people of her ilk. And that list really describes um, what's going on in the schools and in the workplace and things like that. Uh, two of the tenets are, you know, um, the world was, uh, you know, uh, constructed for the benefit of white people. So anything that makes white people comfortable is suspect. You know, right. that's a real tenet of uh, D'Angelo's anti-racist uh, education. Another She's one white, is, by the way, just in case people are not clear, Robin D'Angelo is a white woman. Yes, yes, that that is, that's a pretty important uh, fact, yes. Um, a, another tenet, and I'm trying to go off a of memory here, um, is that, you know, we shouldn't ask whether racism happened or not. We should ask how it manifested in that situation, which is to say that racism is always already happening. We just have to figure out how. Um, and it also twists concepts like, say, Crenshaw's intersectionality. Um, intersectionality is just about looking at a particular situation and realizing that, you know, the people involved in um, a, a case, for example, aren't just one thing. You know, um, a black female lesbian is going to have a different experience than a white male straight person or even a black male straight person, right? Um, we have to take all those intricacies, those intersections of demographics 
into consideration. That's been twisted, right? Um, through the filter of D'Angelo's and Kendi's and other people who may call themselves critical social justice scholars, um, intersectionality is a way of determining ethos. It's a way of saying who's allowed to talk and who isn't. The more downtrodden intersections you have, the uh, more you deserve the microphone. And the more privileged intersections you have, the more you need to just shut the F up, right? Um, that's what it's been twisted into. So there's CRT, and CRT is not perfect on its own, but what has been twisted into is the real problem. And again, um, critical social justice is a term that D'Angelo uses to describe herself. Okay. Now, this is a question that I probably should have asked a professor uh, back like in my freshman year of college, but <laughs> better late than never. When we put critical in front of something, critical studies, critical theory, what are we doing exactly? Um, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean uh, critical thinking, right? Um, those are the adjective critical in that situation is different from, you know, the one we're using in critical studies or critical race. Theory. Yeah, it's kind of the opposite. Critical thinking, uh, critical theory is replacing critical thinking in certain corners. Yes, it is. I mean, critical thinking is about I, I like um, the late philosopher Richard Paul's definition of critical thinking. Um, it, you know, it's 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 uh, using reason and rationality, uh, empirical evidence and, and things like that to come to a conclusion, regardless of whether you like that conclusion or not, right? It's, it's not about what you want. It's about what is. Um, and, um, you know, what he calls sophisticated critical thinking is critical thinking insofar as, you know, it confirms your biases, right? Um, the critical thinking, or not critical thinking, the critical uh, theory we have today is not critical thinking. It's, 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 tacitly about confirming biases, but what it really is originally is just a uh, counter hegemonic, which is to say uh, it, it, it critiques and counters the mainstream, right? It, it looks at, you know, uh, the mainstream, what in Marxism calls a superstructure, right? It looks at culture and tries to break it apart to see where it's uh, egregiously oppressive, right? Uh, where it's sexist, where it's racist or something like that. So. So critical theory starts from the assumption that something's wrong, right? Okay. Critical, critical thinking tries to figure out if there's something wrong. And if there is something wrong, we fix it. Critical theory, we, we start. The, the, the first step is there's definitely something wrong. We just have to figure out what it is. Okay. So if we took the critical out of critical race theory, we would just have race theory. And that doesn't sound very good for starters. And would that mean anything? Well, I mean, I I teach uh, American uh, philosophical thought, and in that, I teach about the history of race in this country, and I'm honest about it, and I don't pull any punches. And I was doing that long before I heard the term critical race theory. People who are associating critical race theory with just an accurate teaching of um, the history of race in this country it's so much more than that. It's that and teaching that, uh, you know, uh, institutions are inherently racist. It's that and teaching that uh, people who, um, you know, have white skin are uh, inherently a problem, right? I have, a, there's a colleague in my field who says explicitly, uh, white professors are a problem, the fact that they exist, 
is a problem, right? These ideas, you know, as absurd as they are, these ideas are derived from the critical and critical race theory, right? So, so, um, yeah, I feel like I, I, I guess you can say I do race theory in, in, um, you know, some of my classes. Uh, if you want to take out the critical, I don't do critical race theory. Um, but my point is, long story short, you can teach the history of race in this country without touching critical race theory. It's easy. Okay. When, when your colleague, I don't know if this is your direct colleague, the person you referred to who thinks that white professors are a problem, is he saying that? Is he operating on a theoretical level? Is this like a philosophical discussion or is there a world in which people imagine that we would be better off with only academics of color? I'm not entirely sure what he means. Um, I, I, I'm pretty sure what he's trying to do, which is complicate a situation and uh, get people out of their comfort zone so they can think about, you know, the, the dynamics of race and academia. And um, that's something that he seems to have succeeded in. But, you know, uh, a lot of this, and, and, and this goes back to critical uh, social justice, critical white studies and things like that. Um, and it even has origins in critical race theory proper. Uh, this idea that America is irredeemably racist. There's nothing we can do about it. Derek Bell, um, which, who is arguably the, you know, the founding father of critical race theory, had a, an essay called uh, Racial Realism. Um, in the early 90s, if I'm not mistaken. So this is towards, the, you know, the beginning of CRT as a movement in academia. And the point of that essay is that there's been racism, you know, institutional racism isn't going away. There's nothing we can do about it. The best we can do is push back in order to maintain a sense of dignity, right? Um, and and uh, that's that. So if you have that idea... And you're going to deal with things. Are you going to say things like um, the presence of white professors is inherently a problem? What you're really doing is just trying to keep them on the hook. You know, uh, you're, you're just trying to, uh, you know, have them, you know, uh, create a culture of genuflection. Right. Um, because what else can you possibly do? You know, if it's irredeemable, if it's uh, if we can't get rid of it, then what are we doing when we fight against it? You know, it's it's more like um, resentment um, and a grab for dignity than any kind of practical way of dealing with racism. Right. So I want to try to draw a map here from this school of thought existing in academia, existing in certain kind of intellectual circles and making its way to public institutions like public education. So, you know, Helen Pluckrose was on this podcast Last summer, she was one of the, the first guests, and she, as listeners may know, I'm sure you know, is the co-author with James Lindsay of um, of a book about about critical studies uh, and just kind of really laying out different schools of thought where these ideas came from. But anyway, my my point is that the conversation at that time was really about how what you're talking about had infiltrated academia and it was starting to come out in other parts of the culture. But, you know, it was really like, there was a lot of like laughing at, you know, the silliness of certain um, papers in scholarly journals, you know, extremely esoteric, yeah. uh, narrowly defined uh, uh, journals. Famously, they had the hoax where they 
Peter Bogosian, James Lindsay, and Helen Pluck Rose wrote a bunch of fake scholarly papers that were like caricatures of of these kinds of things and, you know, rape culture in dog parks and fat bodybuilding and this kind of thing. And and we were talking about this as a phenomenon that was existing, you know, in in small elite liberal circles. It wasn't something that yet had been identified as a, a broader phenomenon, something that was affecting everybody. So I want you to help me kind of trace how in such a short period of time, we've started talking about it. We've stopped talking about it that way and started talking about it in this new way. People like my friend who, you know, lives in Tennessee and doesn't follow this at all, who would never know who Helen Pluckrose is. Suddenly, this is very much on on her radar. Um, does it have to do with this this figure named Christopher Rufo, he's the one that kind of brought all of this to the attention of the Trump administration. Is it is this the point where we kind of talk about who he is? Um, it can be sure. I mean, it's a lot of this. I mean, especially in my field, anyway. I, I can speak uh, most uh, confidently about my field specifically. Uh, these things have been going on for a while. Yes, things uh, started to. Uh, you know, uh, grow or metastasize, depending on how you look at things, um, um, when Trump was elected, right? Um, even a little before that, but when Trump was elected, yeah. things really started to, uh, you know, move full steam ahead. Um, what Rufo does is he, he sees uh, the great awakening, right? When, when it's really on steroids, right? And, and, and he says, okay, I, I'm going to point this out. People are, um, emailing me, sending me things, uh, you know, uh, complaining about what's going on in their schools. I'm just going to expose all of this. So I think the, the, uh, conservative backlash and the backlash against the conservative backlash, uh, sure, uh, Rufo can be considered the mastermind of that manifestation of things, but this was already here and it was yeah. already a problem and yeah, we and- were already trying to deal with it. Um, yeah, and actually, let me let me let me back up here a second. Do you know how this, when and how this approach started coming up in public schools in K through twelve education? When did your average seventh grade English teacher start sounding like your average uh, English professor at Wesleyan? Um, that's a good question. I'm not entirely sure. This was not on my radar two years ago, right? Um, okay. Well, that also, says something. That's yeah. Helpful. Also, yeah. also, I'm not I'm not a K through twelve um, teacher. I have friends who are, and they tell me stories. But you know, they didn't. I didn't even know they had stories to tell until recently. Really, the, the last uh, year and a half to two years. You know, so I don't really know exactly when the seventh grade English teacher started sounding like a uh, you know research one university Marxist theorist. Or something like that. <laughs> well, what kind of stories are your friends telling you? Um, well, I have um, an African American uh, friend in the um, Quaker School Network in the Philadelphia area, and she's talking about how everybody's just obsessed with race and, and doing the right thing. But she also sees that they're putting certain people in certain categories, and the category they're putting the black students in is. Not the coolest category in the world. I mean, you're constantly oppressed. Everybody's against you. You have no agency. Um, she's seeing these things, and you know, she caught wind of the op-eds I was writing and decided to contact me and 
and tell me all about it. Um, all I could say was, uh, hang in there and fight the good fight. Um, but, you know, I, I didn't even, I don't know if that was happening in her school a year ago, right? Okay. Two years ago. It seems like it's new. And is it happening because school administrators or school boards are bringing in DEI, that's diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, consultants, trainers, that sort of thing, to kind of make sure that the school system is on the right side of history? Like, what's what was the impetus for this? Maybe you don't know, but I'm, I think this is a question everybody is asking. Well, um, I don't know directly the impetus. I, I know rather than cause and effect, I can do like an antecedent consequence thing, which is, you know, this thing has something to do with the consequences of or the, you know, uh, the manifestation of CRT based diversity trainings in the workplace or, or okay. something like that. Go, go for um, uh, a couple of things happen. I think after George Floyd and um, a, a lot of the uh, senseless murders that happened last year, um, the people just, you know, they, they looked at the best selling books, they, they read them and decided, okay, now I know what to do. You know, not really discerning, you know, which of those books is written by, you know, legitimate scholars and activists and which ones are not. Um, secondly, um, racism or fighting racism was an industry before 2020. You know, um, and I, I mean that when I say it's an industry, there's money to be made from uh, diversity trainings and things like that. I, I used to do diversity trainings um, in, a, in a past life. Really? Uh, yes. And it had nothing to do with critical race theory. Okay. Uh, I want to hear about that maybe. Okay. Keep going for now. All right. Well, I kind of blocked it out, so I don't know. I'll try my best. <laughs> uh, to, uh, so what happens when you go it. to a podcast, I'm going to yes. But uh, yeah, it's an industry. There, there, there are industries that are, you know, there are companies that are all about DEI. Now, I don't know, you know, um, the names of these companies. Well, I haven't memorized them anyway. I have them somewhere. Um, but they're not household names to me, but I know they're out there. Right. And, and some of them, Coca-Cola um, had one. They got in trouble for, uh, you know, uh, doing one, I think, last fall in which the, you know, the general conclusion was try to be less white. That was inspired by Robin DiAngelo, if I'm not mistaken, and therefore critical social justice, critical white studies and, and, and things like that. Um, so there's money to be made here. D'Angelo um, apparently makes at least $15,000 every time she speaks. You know? Probably more now. Probably even more now. Yes. I mean, it's, it's, there's, this is a business. You know, and the last thing you want if you have a burgeoning business is to have the impetus for that business to go away. You have to have racism in order to make money fighting racism. Um, you have to have racism in order to have what even Kendi claims he wants, which is a department of anti-racism as another branch of government. So in order to justify another branch of government, you know, um, you have to maintain the reason why that branch of government came up in the first place. In order to have a department of anti-racism, you need racism. And a good way to guarantee that is to make sure racism is everywhere. Right. And to, uh, what, yeah. What does Kendi think that the department of racism would do? It would monitor speech to make sure that things are in a, you know, um, 
the speeches of racists that will monitor institutions and make sure they're not uh, implementing policies uh, that are racist. And when he says um, a policy is racist, he means that it's not fighting racism explicitly, right? Um, so it, does, it doesn't have to be pushing racism. It has to not be pushing anti-racism in order to be racist. So now so many more things are inherently racist uh, than they were with the original definition of racist. Um, so that's what he wants to do. And he wants that department to be independent, right? Um, and, and, and autonomous. So, I mean, I think, I mean, I, I'm certain that he didn't think it was a possibility at all. I'm sure he just, he, he mentioned that for propagandistic, uh, rhetorical purposes, right? Uh, but still, the fact that he would put that out there as brazenly as he did, you know, tells you a lot about this movement. You know, um, and I think personally, it tells you a lot about the uh, the corporate aspect of this movement. Yeah. Can you explain that to me? Because I've been trying to figure out what's really behind this corporate virtue signaling. I don't like to use that term because it's derogatory at this point. But like, what are corporations really getting out of it? Are they just covering their asses or is there some financial incentive? I I think they're just covering their asses. Okay. Yeah. I mean, simple answer. (laughs) Okay. Um, Let's talk about the 1619 Project and the curriculum that has come out of that. I don't know how much detail you can go into there, but um, as people probably know, the 1619 Project is a big journalism project, um, came out of the New York Times reporter, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones. It not only won the Pulitzer Prize for journalism it, it it has become its own sort of pedagogy so it's it's really like a set of lesson plans i went on the the website which is actually part of the pulitzer or i think it's part of the part of the pulitzer committee website if i'm not getting this wrong and tried to kind of look at what the lesson plans entailed and i don't know it doesn't look that coercive or it doesn't seem that doctrinaire. What do you, what do you think about it? But I also didn't really, I didn't click on that much and I didn't read any of the assigned books. So. Well, I haven't read that in a while. (laughs) Um, I read it when it first came out. Um, And when I read it, I I saw some things that were questionable, like the, um, the whole purpose behind the United States of America, America was white supremacy and, and the enslavement of, of Africans. I mean, that's, you know, that seems to be the most contentious aspect of it. But other things, what I saw when I initially read that was just people looking at the world through a different lens, you know, um, a lens that centered race and racism and white supremacy. Um, And I saw it as kind of a thought experiment of sorts, right? Um, The the initial essay uh, makes some claims, like the one I just talked about, but the other ones are just like, I, I, they are interesting speculations about, um, you know, the, the contemporary dynamics of race and how they're derived from, um, the history of race in this country. Um, I, I think it depends on how one uses the 1619 project. That is a problem. Um, now I'm not saying the project isn't problematic. I'm just saying on a scale of one to 10, and it's not, a, it's not a 10. You know, like a lot of people are saying it is. 
Um, and I think it could potentially make for some interesting conversations. Yes. So we have the lesson plans like the 1619 Project. We also have um, people kind of, I don't know if it's cherry picking or just uh, kind of, you know, ha- having having greater memory retention for the more extreme examples. You know, we have constantly, we're ha- having sort of horror stories come out of public and private schools about the way kids are assorted into what are now being called affinity groups. There'll be a group for white kids, groups for kids of color, because supposedly they feel safer when they're segregated like that. I mean, that, you know, to most of us is really backwards thinking. So we have this kind of pedagogy. Some of it is okay. Some of it is really not so good. Some of it maybe is good. Um, And along comes this character named Christopher Rufo. Now, what I understand of him, he was like a filmmaker. He was kind of a in, in creative fields, kind of just floating around the media and cultural ecosystem. And he got kind of obsessed with these ideas and it's kind of, you know, hooked on them. And he went from being, you know, basically a a liberal and progressive, I guess, to a kind of, I don't know if he's like a uh, kind of center right conservative, but he brought, he basically brought it to the administration. He basically brought it to the attention of the Trump administration that these sorts of things were going on in public schools and that attention needed to be paid. And what has come out of this is a whole bunch of bills in state legislatures, quote unquote, banning critical race theory. And to a lot of people, that sounds pretty scary. I don't think most people think that the government, the federal government should be banning the teaching of anything. Um, But so there's a lot of, you know, there's kind of a panic around that, especially over the last month or so. But then if you look at these bills, they're really all over the place. Some of them don't do very much at all. Some of them are, they're such overreach that teachers wouldn't even be allowed to teach anything, (laughs) Uh, you know, extremely far left concepts or center right concepts for that matter. Um, So what do you know about these bills? Uh, And like, what do you think as an, as an academic, I know this is not your realm, but um, have you looked at the details of any of them? And do you have any thoughts? Uh, Yeah, I do. Um, And I want to start with this one, the Trump's executive order um, from late last year is probably the most generous of all the um, executive orders slash uh, House and Senate bills that I've seen. Um, and I say that because it makes explicit, and I just pulled it up right here, so it makes explicit at the end of the executive order, it says, quote, nothing in this order shall be construed to prohibit, di- prohibit discussing as part of a larger course of academic instruction, the divisive concepts listed in Section 2A of this order in an objective manner and without endorsement. Now, Section 2A just goes over all the, you know, things we know about the manifestations of quote-unquote CRT and K-12 through education and workplace and things like that. But this executive order is not banning discussion about race. It's not banning even trainings about race. It's banning a particular methodology, uh, an approach to race that is being called critical race theory. So, I mean, people tend to ignore that part of the executive order. 
that it's not saying let's not talk about race. It's saying let's not do it in a way that is being called divisive concept, right? Um, let's, let's not apply these divisive concepts. And, uh, and those divisive concepts are, um, you know, for example, one, uh, one race or sex is inherently superior to another one, right? The United States is fundamentally racist or sexist. Um, an individual by virtue of race or sex is inherently racist and so on and so on. Those are the divisive concepts that this executive order is trying to get rid of, not the discussion of race per se, right? Um, the state, uh, bills that we're seeing, um, have a comparable message, right? It's about divisive concepts and not about not talking about race. However, um, as I've been noticing from looking at the uh, bills and from other people's assessment of the bills, there's a lot of confusing language in there. Um, Arkansas seems to be banning any talk of social justice, period, you know, which I think is a problem. And how are they phrasing that? Are they actually saying, don't talk about social justice? How are they defining social justice? That's a good question. I have it around here somewhere. That's okay. I, <laughs> I mean, it's it's... Yeah, like a lot of them are so vague that they they could arguably make it impossible to teach about slavery or racism at all, right? I mean, you know, I one of them, I'm I'm not sure which state is this. Uh some of the bills, okay, prohibit and I'm quoting from uh Greg Lukianov's roundup uh in the his his report for fire, that's the Freedom for Individual Rights and in Education organization. So he did a um, uh, he wrote 13 important points in the campus and K-12 critical race theory debate. And I'll link to that in the show notes. But, um, you know, some of these bills prohibit, quote, making part of any course that, quote, any individual should feel discomfort, guilt, anguish, or any other form of psychological distress on account of his or her race or sex. Well, that's like you're, you're, you're trying to account for people, for how people feel. And that's just by definition impossible. Right. Um, if I'm not mistaken, and again, I forget which one it is, there was one that said, you know, uh, we shouldn't be so concerned about student comfort, you know, um, we should right. be able to, yeah, you know, so, I mean, it's, it's all over the place regarding that and different states have different, uh, slightly different takes on things. Uh, but I guess just what I'm trying to say is, you know, a lot of people are lumping in all kinds of things with divisive concepts uh, that can definitely do more harm than good. I found a line from the um, Arkansas uh, bill. Uh, it says, a public school shall not allow a course, class, event, or activity within its program of instruction that promotes the overthrow of the United States government, okay, um, and two, promotes division between resentment of or social justice for a race, gender, political affiliation, social class, or a particular class of people. I mean, that's that's confusing language to me, right? It's language that somebody could infer, okay, um, I can't talk about social justice um, at all, or I don't have to talk about social justice, you know, depending on who you are. Um, and so, yeah, the, 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 the language is a bit problematic. Louisiana's, um, its language suggests that, you know, you can't, explore the connections between capitalism and racism, right? Which, which I think is a legitimate topic to discuss. Yeah. You know, uh, Pennsylvania, my state, 
um, says it's it's banning any idea that merit based systems should be questioned. Right. So, I mean, it's I believe in meritocracy, but I also believe that what defines merit can be negotiated. Um, But uh, according to the Pennsylvania bill, that's not allowed. So I I think there are some, you know, um, specifics here that are problematic in these bills. But what they're trying to do ultimately is get rid of what are called divisive concepts. And most of them, I think Arkansas or Missouri, rather, mentioned CRT outright. But most of them are just talking about divisive concepts. They don't mention CRT. Okay, And do they all have to do with race? Because another thing about critical race theory is that it it's kind of a misnomer because it leaves out gender, for instance. There are Mm -hmm. all kinds of immutable characteristics uh, and their ramifications that could fall under this umbrella of discussion. So, like, (laughs) do you have thoughts about that? Well, there there's a, you know, critical feminist studies as well. Right. Um, Critical. Fast studies. Uh, right. I actually uh, wrote a book about uh, size acceptance activism. Yeah, I know you ago. did. I want to. I want to get to that hopefully in a little bit. But yeah, I guess so. My question is: Do you know if these bills uh, talk at all about gender or anything else, or is it all focused on race? It's, they talk about gender too. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah, uh, class. You know, uh, political affiliation. And again, I know this is not your area, but like, is there a precedent for um, for policy, educational policies that would be enacted on state and local levels coming down from the federal government, coming from the, the top levels like this? Because it really, it's almost like a game of telephone. It's like this stuff was going on uh, in universities and then it started to kind of pop up. Individual teachers would make certain you know, pedagogical decisions, et cetera, then, you know, people get wind of it. This guy, Christopher Rufo, decides to, uh, you know, make a big deal about it and go to the Trump administration and, you know, give a couple of horror stories about what is going on. And then suddenly all these senators and congressional people are freaking out over something they may or may not understand. Is that an accurate kind of assessment i i've used the uh game of telephone metaphor before so yes i agree with everything you just said okay okay um but is you know do we usually get these sorts of decrees from on high like this or i mean because you know curriculum that's that comes out of not even the state so much as local school boards is that do i have that right yeah okay I mean, another thing that people talk about a lot is the capture of school boards. You know, we talk about ideological capture a lot. That's a phrase that that comes up when we're talking about these kinds of new culture war discussions. Um, Why is it that school boards seem to be so susceptible to this? uh, I hate to even say ideology because that sounds so sort of paranoid, but to think of a better word. Uh, why do they like this stuff so much? Um, well, first of all, I'll call it an ideology. Sure. Okay. Yeah, capital I. Um, a lot of people now, I don't know every school board member, um, not even in my own town. I know some of them, but but not all of them. Um, many of them are coming out of graduate programs in education where these ideas are being pushed with very little um, 
push back, right? Um, so one can say, here's another, you know, problematic I word. Um, one can say they're being indoctrinated to some degree um, into embracing what's being called critical race theory. Um, and then they're, you know, going out into the world and they're teaching and they're, they're administrators. I've noticed the administrative backing um, has grown, you know, in the last few years where it wasn't there before. Right. So there's a, there's, there's a lot of top down, there's more top down going on than I remember. Exactly. Is that because people are retiring? This is a generational divide. It seems like the people who would be less inclined to embrace this are either being pushed out or retiring. And there's a new cohort rising to the higher ranks. I think that's a very good and accurate point. I think, um, no, I'm not going to be like the, I'm not going to bash millennials right now. Like everybody's done that. It's kind of a, it's, it's, it's passe at this point. Um, but this is definitely a different, um, uh, generation with different understandings of society. And those understandings are manifesting in ways that are being called divisive concepts. Um, and, that's not something that the boomers or even Gen X is really uh, embracing. Obviously, there are some Gen Xers that do, but, you know, um, Generation X, my generation, for the most part, is not down with uh, any of this. So you have, uh, you know, the older millennials and, and, and down pushing this. And yes, I mean, they are becoming the majority in any workplace. Yeah. And unfortunately, our generation, Generation X, is the smallest generation. A very small cohort sandwiched between two very large ones, the boomers and the millennials. So we get no, no, nobody ever listened to us anyway. Um, (laughs) Well, I want to I want to ask you about your students. Um, You you teach at York College of Pennsylvania. Um, What kind of students do you have? What kinds of high schools have they come from? What is their what kind of worldviews do they have vis-a-vis these, these issues? Um, well, York County is very red and um, very working class in, in, in many ways. So the students I have, you know, um, there's a, you know, it's, it's a multicultural bunch of students um, for sure. One can argue that it should be more multicultural, but, you know, there's a, um, you know, significant number of uh, uh, students of color here, uh, but they're all about business. You know, the, the the things that things that happen at Evergreen, for example, you know, uh, probably aren't going to happen here. You know, uh, these these students have jobs, some full time. You know, um, they're not all living on campus in order to save money. They're all about let, let, let me get me edu- in my education and 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 move on. So. Your college, as of now, anyway, kind of, um, I don't know, it, the, the zeitgeist of wokeism has skipped over it for the time being. Um, but um, in my field, however, you know, when I'll go to a conference or participate in an online conference or something like that, the wokeism slaps you in the face, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so it's, 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 it's a more robust thing, phenomenon among my fellow academics than it is among my immediate students. Right. So would you say that the professors are woker than the students in this case? Um, 
Generally, yes. Again, here, uh, I wouldn't call the faculty especially woke in a sense we're using it. But, um, you know, uh, throughout my field, yes. Okay. So you, uh, I heard you recently in an interview with Brooke Gladstone on NPR's On the Media about this question of cancel culture. Um, another term that it has been elasticized into meaninglessness. Um, it was the question of whether or not it, it exists. You believe it does exist because you were canceled yourself um, in, in some fashion. So well, in what some happened fashion, there? yes. But I mean, as Brooke um, pointed out, I'm fine. And I agree with her. I'm fine. My, my issue isn't that, you know, woe is me. I, I, I've been and uh, um, damaged irreparably uh, or, or something like that. My point is that, you know, canceling somebody is not the last resort anymore. It's the first resort. And we're when academics go straight to, I'm going to shut you up instead of talking, I don't think they're academics any longer. I think they're activists. Uh, I, I think they're, uh, you know, um, what's the term I'm looking for? The word evangelical pops into my head, but I don't want to use that. Um, but very spirited, let's just say that, activist. Um, and they're, they're no longer academics. That's my issue with it. Right. I mean, the reason I brought this up, this was that was a little bit of an abrupt transition, but uh, it, it came to mind because you're talking about your position within the realm of academia. You are an English professor, I know you're a rhetorician, but you have to operate. You may have the luxury of having students that have better things to do than than obsess about the granular, you know, the, the, the microaggressions that they may or may not experience. But you have to still operate in the academic sphere. You have to do all the things that one must do to, you know, get tenure, keep a job, kind of stay relevant. And so um, you are in a tough position because you're not, you're not towing the line. So can you explain what happened that, that got you sort of, uh, half canceled or temporarily canceled? It involved Twitter. Did it not? Partly. Yes. Um, the person I mentioned earlier, uh, who said that white professors are a problem inherently, Mm -hmm. um, that person made a speech in which he said that, and various other things at a conference in 2019. I went on a listserv for rhetoric professors, uh, rhetoric and composition professors, um, a couple of days later, questioning the validity and efficacy of that speech. And that's when the floodgates of degradation opened. Um, and I say degradation purposefully because there is a concept called a degradation ceremony um, in which somebody really? who isn't saying the right things is systematically and purposely discredited. Wait, right? a degradation ceremony? Yes. Um, this, this is a this is an official thing. This isn't just something like that came up. Uh, no, online. no. This is this comes from Harold Garfinkel uh, in the 1950s. Wrote an essay on it called "Status Degradation," and he talked about the phenomenon of when you know somebody is out of line in the group, that person has to be made an example of. You know. Um, and this is nothing new in humanity. Uh, back in the day, we tarred and feathered people and marched them down Main Street, right? Now we mob them on social media, but it's the same concept. You know, we, we have to discredit this person, make sure that nobody wants to associate with this person anymore, make sure this person is ridiculed to the point of uh, self-censorship, right, and humiliation. 
And this is all an attempt to get rid of a possible problem, right? Uh, instead of uh, actually dealing with it or engaging with it, because to engage with it is to weaken your stance, right? And that's why cancel culture is a thing because, you know, uh, engaging with something dignifies it, right? You're dignifying it with a response. Uh, if you can just, you know, destroy that person or at least silence that person, um, that's a lot safer for, um, you know, your ideological stance and everything you're, tr you're trying to bring forth. Mm -hmm. So degradation ceremonies are a thing. And um, what happened to me was comparable to a degradation ceremony, especially on Twitter, not so much on the listserv. I mean, it was there on the listserv, but especially on Twitter with people, you know, just making things up about me, uh, saying I said things I didn't say, you know. Uh, what did you was, actually say? What I actually said was, I think that, you know, what's going on with uh, the speech that was happening and um, the general movement in the field, I think it was doing more harm than good. Um, I think it made no sense from a strategic standpoint. And I think it was infantilizing to our students. Mm -hmm. That's what I said. Um, I did not say that racism didn't exist. I did not say that I was a champion of white supremacy. I did not, you know, seek out graduate students specifically and try to stalk them and had this elaborate month long plan on how to do that the best way. Yes. Those you were accused of, of those you were accused of doing that? Yes. Okay. Um and you know, fun things like that. Um the the funniest thing about it all is that they actually thought that would work. You know, I um I've gotten louder because of that day. You know, I didn't I didn't shut up. I I you know I I got I grabbed a metaphorical me megaphone and now right. I'm here talking to you. Right. You know, if, right. If, they, if, if they would have engaged me, you know, um, as academics, you know, I, I don't know if I'm sitting here talking to you right now. If they would have said nothing, if they would have just ignored my email, I don't know if I'm talking to you right now. And what year did this happen? 2019. Okay. So were you, it sounds to me like you were getting a little you were pretty wary of this kind of ideology to use your word, you know, up until that point. And then I think something that happens to a lot of people, if they get, you know, if they get dogpiled on Twitter, if they get dragged, if something happens to them where their own community kind of turns on them, they become kind of small R radicalized in a way, or it's not even really being radicalized. You're just sort of emboldened like there's a sense of like okay you know what screw it i'm not gonna pretend anymore i'm done playing this game uh and so yeah I, I asked what year it was because so by last summer in 2020 uh you um almost about exactly a, a year ago you had a piece in newsweek called why i still talk to white people about racism uh yes. i know you, you don't write the headlines maybe you i don't know if you wrote that one usually we don't write them but um you know, I, it's, it's again, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty anodyne piece. I mean, you are clearly, I would read this as an anti-racist piece, but, um, you know, it, I, I thought to call up the piece because you mentioned that word strategy, uh, a, a little bit ago. And I think that that is something that is missing from so much of this discussion. And in fact, I think some people hear the word strategy and immediately think that you're kind of not having enough empathy somehow that like those two things don't go together. And you're really making what would be a very obvious point, which is that 
if you want to fight racism, uh, you actually have to engage with the people who are being racist. Uh, how was that? How was this article received uh, among your your peers? Um, well, I was uh, I was going to do a talk at uh, University of Arizona, but uh, there was significant pushback against it, and I mean, I ended up kind of doing the talk, but not you know sponsored directly by uh, University of Arizona. Um, there's pushback because of that article. And because of who I was from the listserv and Twitter, you know, the, that that incident was still fresh in people's minds. So uh, a lot of people, a lot of graduate students said that article made them feel unsafe. So uh, and uh, I, I, I don't think they're the only ones who felt that way. My point with that article was just that this is a window of opportunity, right, to yeah. really talk about race and work together here. And if we're refusing to have these conversations, then we're wasting this opportunity, right? Uh, that's, yeah. yeah. You have a great passage here. You write, Black people, whether we like it or not, this is a culture war and we are the generals. When a soldier in the midst of battle goes to the general for advice, that general does not say, I'm tired, figure it out yourself. That general uses years of expertise to concoct the best chance of coming out on top, even if that general, for some reason, thinks he or she shouldn't or they should not have to fight in the first place. Yes, it's unfair to find oneself in such a battle, but I'd rather have that conversation after the battle is won. Now, that seems to me um, pretty logical, uh, pretty anodyne, frankly. Mm -hmm. Um, But was that uh, one of the the moments that made them feel unsafe? Um, Probably. I, I didn't really get much uh, about specific passages, um, but I can say that, you know, uh, reason and rationality um, are all but demonized in woke circles these days. Uh, they're seen as um, perpetuators of the status quo of white supremacy. Right. Yes. <laughs> and oh, like, OK, but here's the thing. Who really thinks this? Because I, I've said this a number of times. I feel like, you know, the the culture is being held hostage by by a very small number of people. It's almost like a phantom. Are these just a handful of of people on Twitter hiding behind avatars and a handful of of radical academics um, deciding that that we should all be afraid of them when in fact there's hardly any of them? Like most. Black people think this is nonsense. Most people think this is nonsense. So what are we doing? Well, um, again, after 2020, nobody wants to be the person who comes off as insensitive and racist. So this um, loud minority, if you will, comes out, says their thing, and other people who don't agree with their tactics or their ideas are self-censoring. Right. Because it's just easier that way. Um, You know, I have tenure, so I can say things that a lot of people can't. Others in more precarious situations have to be careful. They have bills to pay. Right. So if they say the wrong thing, uh, they could get fired. Now, the wrong thing goes uh, anywhere from an actual racist statement to questioning the validity of a methodology for dealing with racism, right? All those things are 
under the umbrella term of racist and white supremacist. So when that's the case, you know, uh, I can understand why people would stay silent. Uh, they shouldn't, especially others with tenure. Um, but I understand it. So that's why this, you know, relatively small group of people are having such a large impact because of self-censorship. Yeah. And I just, I, I've said this a lot on this show. I just don't understand why a handful of powerful gatekeepers don't just stand up and say enough of this, because if they do, the rest will follow. You know, I know people have mortgages and, you know, college tuitions to pay. And I, I, I get that, but there's got to be some people out there who can stick their necks out. And I'm just continually amazed that they seem unwilling or in, unable to do so. Uh, yeah, I'm kind of amazed, too, especially when it comes to the people who, you know, do have power, do have tenure, do have job security. Um, I, I wonder about that. But I mean, at the same time, I get it. You know, I, I know I know how uncomfortable you know, academic departments can be anyway. You know, if if you're labeled, even if you have tenure, if you're labeled that white supremacist who doesn't care for anti-racism, you know, that's, that's going to make your life a lot more difficult. I know people who just quit academia because it was just a minefield and they couldn't deal with it anymore. These are good scholars, right? Who just aren't aren't in it anymore because of this, because of this, right? So that's how... That's how insidious and, 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 and powerful it is, even if it is just a, a, a loud minority. But I really want people to understand, we're not just talking about higher education. We're not talking about K through 12 public education. We're talking about a lot of entities in contemporary life. We're talking about people, we're talking about HR departments and corporations. I mean, I'm, I hear from people every day. I'm sure you do too. They work for a law firm. They work for an insurance company. They, they work in a factory even. Every, every sort of person in every sort of job in every part of the country has experienced some version of this, whether it's their their PTA group or their book club. I hear about, I hear from a lot of people in book clubs who talk about infighting and um, just the way that the, the, the way that books are chosen and the way that the discussions must now go seem to be framed um, around identity issues in a way that, you know, frankly, probably most of the people in the club can't stand, but um, nobody will, will say anything about it. It's really pervasive. Like, and I, I think that's one of the criticisms of whether it's the signers of the Harper's letter or just, you know, I think people who are suspicious of what they see as an obsession, a fixation with this topic say, well, you know, this isn't really happening everywhere. It's, this is only happening to people who have power anyway, like, like professors who have so much power in the world, <laughs> as you know, but, but it's really, it's everybody. I mean, when a utility worker in Southern California, can get get fired from his job because somebody in the car behind him took a photograph of him with his hand held out the window in such a way that somebody decided to interpret it as a white supremacy signal and and put it on the internet and it went viral that pretty much says it all yeah it does and remember what i said about derrick bell and racial realism and how you know we we can't fight it so we might as well just do this out of a sense of dignity uh, and create, uh, you know, guilt and a culture of genuflection. 
Um, you may remember, I, I think it was USC, a professor of business was saying a Chinese word that sounded like the N-word. Yes. And a bunch of uh, students complained he was uh, temporarily suspended, right? Those students, come on, they were fine. They know he wasn't saying the N-word. It sounded like the N-word. They were not harmed. They, they were, were not harmed. They were grabbing an opportunity. The, right. The performance of harm was the point. Right. Right. So where do you think that comes from? Are you in the the Jonathan Haidt school that, that looks at the way that parenting has changed and you've got generations growing up with very different ideas about, about safety and um, sort of a, a emotional self-care uh than we did for instance is is that a lot of it how much um, of it is that's is psychological that's that's part of it um a, a rhetorician uh named kenneth burke uh wrote a book called attitudes toward history and in that book he talks about the attitudes as frames through which we see the world and he comes up with two opposing frames the comic and the tragic the comic frame basically says these people aren't bad. They're just mistaken. They're, they're misled. Um, they've been coddled as, uh, the authors, uh, of the book would say, right? And, uh, they just need to have a, a, a better understanding of the world, a better understanding of how to be more self-aware and socially aware and things like that. And then maybe things can improve. That's the comic frame. The tragic frame is that these people aren't mistaken. They are, they're, they are evil. They're evil. They're, they're, they're bad people. They're trying they're to, out to get you. Yeah. They're out to get you. Um, they're out to, um, perform this harm so they can, I don't know, um, you know, keep white people on the hook to grab some kind of power, um, or something like that. So if we look at the students in the business school at USC who complained about the Chinese word that sounded like the N word, a comic frame would be like they're 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 they've been so coddled that they don't have the resilience and the grit to deal with things and anything is a slight to them, a microaggressor. And then we have the tragic frame of they they weren't hurt at all. This was an opportunity, you know, to stick it to uh, hegemony once again, right? Uh, for our own purposes, I think both are happening. I think both frames. Uh, makes sense in this. It's hard to tell who's who, though. Well, it also ascribes so much power to people who don't necessarily have it. It's kind of like conspiracy theorists. They 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 think that certain you know cabals that they imagine you know global elites, for instance, are so much more organized than they really ever could be. It's like <laughs> you think that all of these people who are who are you know saying mildly offensive or just kind of tone deaf things have some kind of agenda. People aren't that organized. People are just like like living their lives and you know spazzing out all over the place, <laughs> as we would have said back in the eighties. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of uh, conspiracy theory going on here on both sides, though, right? Um, especially, and I don't know how, see, okay, I'm about to do it. Okay. I don't know how, um, you know, much of a conspiracy theory this is, but if you do trace the origins of critical theory in general, um, it's, you know, explicitly Marxist, right? Especially when it comes to, uh, uh what's called cultural Marxism, which basically is the idea that, 
you know, in order to change things like the economy, you, got, you have to change the culture first, which means changing language, which means changing values and attitudes and beliefs and things like that. And uh, Herbert Marcuse in the in the sixties basically said, you know, you know, we we don't need to, you know, create a proletariat or convince people that they should be revolting. There are already people revolting. You know, um, the, 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 the people of color in this country, right? Especially, uh, black people in the country, uh, especially after the death of Martin Luther King, the assassination of Martin Luther King, um, they were already up in arms. They were already counter hegemonic. They were, they, they were already, um, had this revolutionary mindset. So we can just piggyback on that, right? And then you start, you know, uh, critical legal studies is happening during that, but then you get critical race theory, uh, you know, and all the other offshoots of critical theory, right? Um, it, it comes out of that. So one could see, you know, this idea that all of this is a Trojan horse for Marxism. That sounds like a conspiracy theory. But if you, if you do look into it, it's, you know, it, you shouldn't throw out the idea. Right. At least uh, have it in the back of your mind. Right. I but so to take this back to my to my friend, the one who's uh, worried about this infiltrating her schools. I think she might think that, but I think she might get that idea from Tucker Carlson, for instance. So, it, yeah. See, this is the problem. There's a tiny kernel of truth, but then the, uh, the it, it explodes into something nonsensical. You know, I'm, I'm curious, Eric, you, you are, I think you're in your forties. You're, are you in your late forties? Um, uh, maybe mid forties. Okay. So no, don't want to, um, don't want to mic- micro aggress <laughs> yes. you. Yes, I am. <laughs> um, you are, you grew up in, in the eighties as, as, as did I, you're a black man. I think you're from New Jersey. Is that right? Yes, I am. Okay, so like, did you go to public school, and what kind of what kind of education did you get? Like, when you were in history class or English class, how did you feel as a, a black kid? And do you look back on your education and think, "Wow, that could have been a hell of a lot better"? Um, I definitely look back and say, "Wow, that could have been a hell of a lot better." Um, but I mean, it's not that I didn't get the basics. You know, I, I had a pretty good public school education, um, all things considered. But, I mean, we didn't talk about race. I mean, in high school we did to a degree, but not, not, um, as deeply as people would, would say, um, it should be taught today. And I would agree with that. I, I think everybody should know about what happened in Tulsa. I think everybody should know about the pros and cons of school desegregation and how that had some negative effects in some ways. I think people should know that stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah, when, when I was coming up, when we were coming up, I guess, there wasn't much of that at all. And I, I grew up initially, my primary school years, um, were in a predominantly white school. My high school was much more diverse. But, uh, growing up in a predominantly white neighborhood, uh, going to a predominantly white school from kindergarten to through the eighth grade, you know, um, that was not the context where conversations about the history of race and racism in America was going to fly. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to tell you the racist horror stories that happened to me as a child, but
But I, I, I will say that, you know, they weren't trying to hear, you know, any, any accurate assessment of race, uh, in America. So, uh, that, that aspect of CRT is fine. And like I said earlier, you can talk about race in America without, you know, being a critical race theorist. Um, but long story short, I think I'm rambling now. Um, I didn't, you know, get a robust education in race as a kid. What would you, what do you think a good sort of splitting of the difference would be? I mean, I know you just talked a little bit about that, but like, if you could kind of go back to your younger self and think about what would have helped, uh, it's it's not just learning about the Tulsa massacre. Like, do you think it's helpful for a kid in elementary school, for instance, to be introduced to some sort of discussion about intersectional framework or what we think of when we think of power and, and critical theory, like even on a kind of fourth grade level, is that of any help? Because I think that's what some of these, this curriculum does. Um, I think people are trying to do that. Yes. And as a rhetorician, I guess, theoretically, there is a way to translate things for any given audience, even a group of 10 year olds. Um, but I don't know how necessary it is to bring um, certain topics about race up in elementary school. The idea that you shouldn't discriminate based on race and that everybody's a human being who deserves uh, respect and love and things like that. I think you can talk about that. I think you can talk about the original tenets of uh, the civil rights movement in ways that, you know, um, aren't over the heads of 10 year olds. I think you can do that. Um, I think the, um, the more egregious things that happened in the country's history should be taught, but there's a certain place where it should be taught. Um, again, I'm not a K through 12 scholar, but something intuitively makes me think that upper level high school is where that should be discussed. Um, you know, uh, juniors and seniors. Yeah. Because it seems like a lot of these horror stories take the form of, Oh, my, my son came home from third grade and talked about how he was told he is not to speak because he is a white male. And, um, is that, and like, I can, I know you probably don't know the answer. Is that really happening? I mean, obviously it does happen, but how pervasive is it? Because it's really easy, I think, to just kind of like glom on to those sorts of anecdotes. I mean, they're just, they're very, they're very easy to get worked up about, but is that really the whole story? Um, I, I, I think it's definitely happening. I mean, if you uh, look at Rufo's work, I mean, he's kind of chronicling, you yeah. know, uh, places where it's happening. I'm hearing from, you know, actual friends I have that is happening. Um, um, I haven't heard from any friends that students are going home and, and saying that, you know, mommy, I'm an oppressor or something like that. I haven't heard that from my friends, but apparently that's happening. Now, when I when I spoke a few minutes ago, I was talking about the teaching of uh, race in American history. Um, I don't think critical social justice or critical white studies has any place, um, you know, uh, in uh, K through 12. I think I think you could talk about that, you know, um, in college as one of many frameworks through which we see the world. Right. Um, but I don't I, I think it'll do more harm than good, especially at the primary school level. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's strange. It really, it's, it centers whiteness in the same way that I think a lot of the rhetoric around f- 
feminism, especially several years ago, was centering maleness in a way that I thought was completely counterproductive. Like, you know, to, to talk constantly about male privilege and toxic masculinity is to put men at the center yet again. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, and it was always just kind of a, a contradiction to me. Well, so just to kind of uh, wind things down here, I am curious you know, I, I've been I've been peppering you with a lot of policy questions, and and I appreciate your your humoring me there. Um, we're both, I think, kind of finding our way. Uh, you you more so than than me. You're you know you know more about this than I do, um, and I'm I'm trying to figure it all out. But how did you end up in academia? Um, you know, you're you're dealing with some pretty you know you're, you're a real academic. You 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 wrote a book called Fat Tactics: The Rhetoric and Structure of the Fat Acceptance Movement. Uh, you also have a more recent book that, that is about uh, race and, and critical theory. How did you end up here? Well, uh, by here, do you mean this present moment or in no? Not this present general? moment. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna end on that. But yeah, how did you end up uh, in, in academia? Was it just were you always just sort of a, a an egghead? <laughs> um, I wasn't always an egghead. Um, I told you earlier that, you know, uh, my primary school education was in a predominantly white environment, but the high school was more diverse. Um, I was happy to go to that high school because it was more diverse and I can find people and not feel like a misfit, right? Finally feel like I, I fit in and I don't have to deal with, um, you know, the racism. But um, I was too white, quote unquote, for many of my, the, the circle of black students I was hanging out with. Um, and this wasn't all the black students by any means, but it, it was, it was, uh, a lot, especially the ones that, I mean, if you play basketball or something like that, they, you, there was a certain circle and, uh, I was too white for them. Um, and that put in my head ideas to which I didn't have the words yet, you know, rhetoric, discourse, um, ideology, how do people, um, embrace certain ideologies? Um, how are they convinced to embrace them? You know, um, how does one come to the point where, you know, um, a person of this color isn't allowed to act in this way? Where does that come from? Right. Um, and that incident really planted that seed and that that seed grew uh, to the point where I wanted to go to graduate school to explore these. Um, and uh, it's in graduate school, getting a master's degree in American literature that I discovered rhetoric. And fell in love with it and saw that as a way that I could explore the construct of ideology and the truths and beliefs and values therein. Um, and that's, that what, that's what prompted me to get a PhD in rhetoric. And, um, that's why I'm here. What made you write a book about the fat acceptance movement? Um, at the time I was not a diversity officer proper. That was before this. Uh, but I was chairing um, a diversity committee, um, and I was doing research on diversity, as one does. And um, I started to realize that there was this size acceptance movement. And I started to realize that it's kind of the, you know, at the time, anyway, considered the last acceptable form of discrimination. If you call somebody uh, the N-word or you call um, a uh, queer person the F word or something like that, you're going to get in trouble. If you joke about somebody's weight, not so much. And so I started looking at, into this and, and looking into the activism and 
and discovering what worked with their activism and what didn't and realizing that this was an obviously a rhetorical endeavor, um, one based in um, the sociologist uh, Anthony Giddens' concept of structuration. I won't get into that uh, too much, but what I did was show how this is why this movement has been successful in the ways it's been successful, right? Mm. So it's really, it's, it's a very objective rhetorical analysis of um, size acceptance activism. That's all that book is. And your most recent book is a critique of anti-racism in rhetoric and composition, the semblance of empowerment. So it sounds like you're really, you really emphasize, obviously your rhetorician, how much language has to do with this. If we did not have these labels, if we were not able to talk about something like microaggression or, you know, any number, this, what we call jargon, um, would this be so powerful? I guess, how big a role does jargon play in all of this? Jargon plays a huge role. And um, that you can go back to, again, Marxist thought, uh, Tanio Gramsci, uh, from anywhere from him to Marcuse, um, other members of the uh, what's called the Frankfurt School. Language, you know, changing language changes outlook, right? Um, the fact that racism doesn't mean what it meant six years ago you know, in common parlance, um, is that's on purpose, right? You, you take, you take a term and it's on purpose for uh, a couple of reasons. A, um, it does change people's mindsets and B it's, it's a potential cudgel. Um, if you take a, a word that's meant one thing for 200 years, change the definition overnight, not tell anybody you change the definition, and then punish people for getting it wrong. You know, uh, you're part of what's called the tragic frame I was talking about earlier. Um, but if you do want to change uh, society, you have to change the culture. And a good way to change the culture is to change language and definitions. Well, Eric, I really, I really appreciate your talking with me. I have to say, I, I wanted to talk about this subject and um, I thought really hard about who was the best person to do that with. And you came to mind because I think because of partly because of what you just said, precision of language is so important. I wanted to talk with somebody who uh, was, was going to look at the critique of critical race theory in an intellectually honest and critical way. And I think it's hard to find people who do that. There were a lot of people who were going to like bang the drum. This is the worst thing ever. This is so stupid. Uh, and then there were people on the other side, obviously, who say you're on the wrong side of history if you're not supporting this. It's really hard to get this right. Um, and, you know, you've become one of these people who is, you know, who's an academic who is fighting for viewpoint diversity, uh, in academia. I think you're part of the Heterodox Academy. Um, you're also on the advisory board of, um, of FAIR, F-A-I-R, which stands for, what does it stand for? I have it in my notes. Foundation against, uh, what's that? What does FAIR stand for? Um, FAIR. I got it. <laughs> I'm blanking. Foundation, oh my I got God. It. Foundation Against Intolerance and, and Racism. racism. Okay. Uh, we um, both blanked on that. Do, do not tell. Oh, wait, you're still recording. Okay, great. Yeah, I'm still, I'm still recording. Who should we not tell that we messed that up? Um, everyone, really. <laughs> I, just, I totally blanked on that organization. I but love that organization. You know what? It's a testament to how good of an acronym it is that you actually forget what it stands for. 
Sure. So it's just it's just fair. F A I R, not F A, not F A R E. That's That's true. Not not the price of the ticket. Mm. Um, are you ever worried that people sort of like us who are constantly kind of picking at these things, um, are are going too far or sort of being too contrarian? How do you stay honest uh, in this kind of intellectual space? Wow. How do I stay honest? Um, I want to really get to the bottom of things, but there is a lack of pragmatic thought in a lot of woke circles. Um, And I talk about this in the book, A Critique of Anti-Racism, when I talk about prefigurative politics, uh, you know, which is basically, you know, in in its worst form, is performing the world you want to see, but not actually trying to bring it to fruition, Right. You and your friends get together and you have a certain ideologies and, and, um, you know, uh, certain beliefs and attitudes that you share. And in that insular circle, you feel good to the point where you don't care about the outside world anymore. I think in order to actually change the outside world, we have to be realistic. We have to be honest. We have to look at the world, uh, for what it is and act accordingly. We have to be strategic. Um, and, you know, I, I, I guess I try my best to keep it real, as it were, because I actually want to get to the bottom of things, right? I actually yeah. want to, uh, that's why I still talk to white people about racism, for example. I, I want to abide by what's called reality testing, you know, and uh, and um, really get to the bottom of things. Uh, and that's how I teach. You know, I do problem-based learning. I have students look at real-life problems in the environment, in the area. and um, work together to fix them. You know, that's that's being honest and dealing with reality. So from a ped- pedagogical standpoint, um, I believe in it as well. I think in order to really get to a generative and progressive, truly progressive place when it comes to race, uh, we got to look at things the way they are, not the way we want them to be. Yeah. That's hard for a lot of young people to hear. Apparently. Yeah. Well, Eric Smith... Thank you for talking to this white person about race. <laughs> no problem. I've never, I've never ended a podcast like that before. <laughs> As a white person, I thank you. It might, might be a good sign off. Uh, no, you're, you're really doing really interesting uh, work and uh, I'll continue to follow it. And um, yeah, thank you for all you're doing and thanks for taking so much time. You got it. Thanks for having me. That was my conversation with Dr. Eric Smith. He is a professor of rhetoric and composition at York College of Pennsylvania and the author, most recently, of A Critique of Anti-Racism in Rhetoric and Composition. You can find his writings in places like Newsweek, Aereo, Quillette, and the blog of the Heterodox Academy. He sits on the advisory board of FAIR, the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. If you like this show, please consider supporting it on Patreon at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. You can also leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to buy official Unspeakable Podcast Nuanced AF merchandise, you can find it in the Nuance store of the podcast website, theunspeakablepodcast.com. Also, unrelatedly, up until the pandemic, I regularly taught a weekend-long private workshop in personal essay and memoir. 
I taught it out of my home in New York City. I'm very happy to say that I'm bringing it back now, and I'll be conducting the first post-lockdown class the weekend of September 25th, 26th. This is an admission by application kind of deal, and space is limited. But if you're interested, you can visit daummasterclass.com for details. This venture is unrelated to the podcast, but since I do work with people on how to write with honesty and speak the unspeakable, I thought it might interest a few listeners out there. Anyway, I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Until then, thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about up to 25% off grocery store prices. Oh, really? What's wrong with paying full price, huh? No, sir. I would not join BJ's Wholesale Club. Let's agree to disagree, Frank. Say you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card. Join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit bjs.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. Offer valid for a limited time. Are you in excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction? You are not alone. If you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1-888-RECOVERY, your whole family can begin to recover. At Recovery Centers of America at Monroeville, your loved one will be treated with care by expert addiction professionals, while family programming will give you support and healing so that you can recover as well. RC RCA accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now.